Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that we will be covering topics of death and of child loss. Some of the interviews in this episode are challenging to listen to and contain descriptions of corpses. So please take care of yourself and only listen if you feel able to do so. In the southeastern Brazilian state of Minas Gerais, the Doce River winds its way through villages and vast green spaces on its course to the Atlantic Ocean. Its banks are homes to hundreds of thousands of people, its waters supporting human life as well as the myriad of wildlife species that also depend on it. I'm Liz Bonin, and this is Dead River, Episode 2, The Silence of Sirens. I want to take you back to the morning of the 5th of November, 2015. In Brazil, November is the start of summer, and it was going to be a hot day in Bento Rodriguez, a small historic town that's home to over 600 people. It was a Thursday, a work day and a school day, and the people woke early. As the sun rose just after 6 a.m., it was already 23 degrees Celsius. It was a calm morning with very little wind. The skies were clear and from the town, you could see across the treetops for miles in every direction. The nearby waters of Rio de Carmo were flowing steadily. In the state of Minas Gerais, the summers are wet and humid and the rivers and ponds near Bento Rodriguez provided residents with a welcome escape from the long, hot days. In her home in Bento Rodriguez, Monica dos Santos was getting ready to go to work in the nearby city of Mariana. Her friend and neighbour, Mauro, had left his home early to open his auto repair shop also in Mariana. I used to run an auto repair center in Mariana, in the nearby city. And my life was divided between my auto repair shop there and my life in Bento Rodriguez. A kilometer out of town, Paula Geralda Alves was working on planting seedlings in an area that was being reforested. She worked for Brandt, a service provider for Samarco, the company that owned and operated the iron ore mine and its tailings dams not far from there. Paula was the only woman on a team of seven. They worked away as morning temperatures continued to rise, with the high that day set for 34 degrees Celsius. In her home down the road, Pamela Isabel was getting her family ready for the day. Just 21 years of age, she was mum to two children, a three-year-old boy called Nicholas and Emmanuel, a five-year-old girl who everyone affectionately called Manu. That Thursday, Pamela was getting herself ready for school. She had recently decided to finish her education and her husband Wesley was going to stay home with the kids. I was studying. I had gone back to school. When I had my kids, I had to put off finishing school, but I had always wanted to carry on. 
living in the countryside. Things are already difficult, and I wanted to provide something better for my kids and for myself. Wesley worked outside of Bento, and on that day, Wesley stayed with the kids. Usually, when he went to work, they would go up and stay with my mother or my aunt. But on that day, his work van didn't come to pick him up, so he stayed home with them. And you went to school? I went to school. I wasn't really supposed to. I'd already said that I was going to stay at home that day. I'd even agreed with Priscilla, you know, who uh, lived next door to me, that I would help her do her hair that day. <laughs> I decided last minute that I would go in. And I said goodbye to everyone. And Manu said, Mom, kiss me properly. <laughs> I had just given her a quick goodbye, but when I turned to leave, she said, Mom, kiss me properly. So I went back, I kissed her, and I left. That afternoon, Romeo Anjos finished his lunch in the dining hall on the Fundao Dam complex, owned by Samarco. He had recently completed working 10 years for the company, and he was feeling optimistic about the future. He had started to make plans to study engineering under one of the courses the company sponsored. He was in a good mood. The sun was shining and the skies were blue. He worked contentedly next to his colleagues, clearing away weeds and bushes to install a new drainage system. He was nearing the end of his workday when he received a message that there had been some minor earthquakes in the region and he was instructed to inspect the dam. From above, the Fundao Dam looks almost like a huge stadium built into a mountainside. Steps carved into the earth cascade down for 110 metres before levelling out into a wide, flat basin at the bottom. The area above the steps is bare and dusty, and the perimeter of the dam is flanked by thickets of trees. Trapped behind those step-like structures is a mix of wet and dry tailings, the waste material left over from the mining process. In the case of the Fundao Dam, it contained the tailings from iron ore that Samarco extracted and processed at their Germano unit mine nearby. We'll get into the more technical aspects of what a tailings dam is and how it works in the next episode. But for now, what's important to know is that this dam was built in 2007 and it was meant to be used or filled with tailings until 2025. And like all tailings dams, it was designed for permanent containment to remain there forever, eventually becoming part of the landscape. Romeo had parked his truck near the dam, and as he was preparing to get out, he suddenly heard a roar that seemed to emanate from the very centre of the earth. As he looked up, he saw the tailings that were buried in the hillside begin to move and dance, becoming fluid. What happened next happened very, very fast. The following is an excerpt from the book by journalist Christina Serra called The Tragedy of Mariana. In a few moments, the dam burst completely. 
and the stored mud began to set in motion. Romeo froze for 10 seconds, his hands on the wheel of his truck. He felt nauseous. He looked forward and it was as if the world were disintegrating. The ground was falling apart. He took off his seatbelt, opened the door and ran. He saw the truck toppling over. Disoriented, he thought of running to the left bank of the dam. He lost precious seconds until he realized that that would be impossible. The blocks of sand split into fragments. Everything collapsed. Then he decided to run to the right bank, which was more intact. Romeo ran, fell to his knees, got up and jumped over cracks. The more he ran, the more he thought he would never leave this place alive. He ran across ground that moved and liquefied below him. As if the earth was the mouth of a monster, which at any moment could open under his feet and swallow him into the bowels of hell. In desperation to save himself, he continued to jump over the crumbling earth. He was almost out of breath as he sought his last strength and managed to leap into a bush on solid ground. He thought that he had escaped. He was already praying and thanking God when he was surprised by a slap to the side of his head. It was the mud which came in vigorous and successive waves and dragged him into the dark ocean of thick, viscous tailings. By this time, the mass of mud was already mixed with the debris of the structure and the hundreds of thousands of trees it had felled in its path. Everything had combined into an overwhelming and unforgiving flow of debris. Romeo sank. He felt as if he were drowning. He was submerged for minutes, maybe seconds, which seemed like forever. It was all dark. A log struck him in the left thigh. Branches slammed into his body and face as he rolled and spun in despair. When he thought he was close to succumbing, he managed to cling to a log and pull his head out. Almost without strength, he let himself be carried by the stream, feeling pain, swallowing mud and sand, until the rush of the current slowed and the height of the waves decreased. Despite the mud in his eyes, he managed to assess the scenario. He was surrounded by trees and floating logs. He calculated that he was about 30 meters from the bank and that if he could reach it, he could escape. It was the opportunity to save himself, certainly his last. He needed to be agile and quick to move against the mud. He got up and pushed himself over the trunks. Sinking, lifting, sinking, lifting, until he reached the bank. His head ached. Rumel threw himself on the ground and began to vomit, non-stop, until there was nothing left. 
he felt dizzy. From where he sat, he saw that the mud continued to descend. At 4 p.m., Paula Alves looked up from the sapling she was planting in the damp earth as the walkie-talkie came to life in the service truck nearby. The sound was distorted and the person speaking was frantic. But through the breaks in the signal, she made out the phrase, The dam has broken. The team she was working with looked in the direction of the dam. They could make out an ominous brown cloud bearing down towards them. Without any hesitation, Paula jumped on her motorcycle and she pushed off. There was only one thought on her mind. Get to Bento Rodriguez. They kept shouting at me, Come back, Paula! Come back, Paula! I didn't hear them because the sound from the den was so loud. It sounded like a sea wave, an aeroplane, an helicopter, all together. I didn't hear them. I just set off. And for them, I was dead. One man I worked with said that he watched from the top of a hill and as soon as I crossed the bridge below him, the mud tore the bridge away. The mud was chasing me the whole time, but I didn't look back to see it. I raced in front of the mud without knowing when it would catch me. If I stopped, it wouldn't work. I knew the mud would get me. Her bike was running low on gas by the time she entered the town, but Paula continued on her mission to warn the people of Bento Rodriguez. I went up the whole main street, shouting at people. I went to the end of one street, where my house was, went up to my house, shouted inside, turned around and came back. And then I went down to the next street and the next street. I just shouted, run, the dams burst, everybody get out of the house. And they all ran. At Rua do Cascalho, I ran out of gas. I pulled my bike over to the side of the road and someone came along with the truck. I helped put some elderly people into the truck bed and then ran towards the hill looking for my family. My sister was getting ready for school and when I had shouted into my home for everyone to evacuate, she was in the shower. So when I saw my sister, she was wearing a bathrobe, just a bathrobe. At the time of the collapse, there was no siren to warn people. There was only Paula. The whole town was in a frenzy. People frantically dragged their families along. They stopped to knock and shout into neighbors' houses as they ran for higher ground. One resident recalled in an interview with Christina Serra that all around her she could hear a chorus of the same question. Why did San Marco lie to us? At the county school, head teacher Elien dos Santos Almeida received a call from her husband warning her that the dam had collapsed. With the help of other teachers, she chaperoned all 40 students up the hill on the border of the town. 
Pamela's husband Wesley remained rooted, stunned, in their family home, unsure of what to do. He had never been given a plan to follow in this situation, and he simply didn't know what was safest for his family. He held on tight to his two children, and he closed his eyes in prayer. When the mud hit the walls, the house collapsed, and the current pulled him, Nicholas and Emmanuel, in different directions. He reached out and grabbed Nicholas's hand. He searched for Emmanuel's hand too, but all he felt was mud. Out of time, Paula headed up the hill, pushing her bike ahead of her. At the top of the slope, she stood with her family, friends and neighbours and watched the current of mud engulf Bento Rodriguez. Many were paralysed in shock. Others prayed on their knees. They wept and they shouted, Why did they not warn us? Why did San Marco do this to us? According to most reports, in just 10 minutes, the town of Bento Rodriguez disappeared forever. That's just half the time you've been listening to this episode. In the nearby city of Mariana, the phone rang in the office of Duarte Jr. He was only two months into his first term as the city's mayor. I was in my office when I received the call from someone at San Marco. It wasn't from the company directly, but it was from one of the workers. And they said, the dam has broken. And I said, what? What? What do you mean? What are you saying? And he said, we must evacuate Bento Rodriguez. I had only been in the office for two months at this point. I, I had never had any training or been prepared for any of this to happen. I didn't even know which dam it was. And after that, about five minutes later, I received a call from a local pastor and he told me that Bento was finished. And I was just asking him, what do you mean? What about all the people? And behind him, I could just hear people shouting and screaming in despair. So I hang up, I called the federal guards, and then I got in my car and I start to drive to Bento. And this road actually went right by BHP office. So I stopped to ask them, what happened? What what was happening? And none of the employees had any idea. No one knew what measures to take. And, and it was just like chaos. There was no information. And something that's still very, very fresh in my memory. I, I drove past one of the residents of Beto Rodriguez on the road. And he leaned out of this window and said, You killed us. You killed the people of Bento Rodriguez. You are all guilty. The mud didn't stop at Bento Rodriguez. It's estimated that somewhere between 45 and 65 million cubic tons of tailings waste was released that afternoon. 
the equivalent of over 20,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of waste. Next in the firing line of destruction was the town of Paracatu de Baixo, located less than 40 kilometers from Bento Rodriguez. With no idea how quickly the deluge was advancing, emergency responders had to come up with the most immediate plan, and helicopters were their best bet. A report written by emergency responder Villas Boas describes the drama of those crucial minutes after the helicopter landed in Paracatu de Baixo. Here, a voiceover artist reads his words. When the helicopter landed, the children's euphoria and joy was enormous. Several of them gathered on the football field to see the helicopter as we landed. The tranquility of Paracatu de Baixo felt so out of place compared to the emergency situation we knew was heading their way. Immediately after landing, we began to mobilize people in the town. It was so sudden, it felt like in seconds the silence of the place turning to screams of dread and despair. Everyone looked so scared and lost. An elderly man said to me, the mud won't reach us until tomorrow. I grabbed him by the shoulders and shouted, you need to move now. Go up, go to the cemetery, otherwise you will die. It was the most contradictory advice I ever gave in my life, telling a person to go to the cemetery so they would not die. The first responders were successful. Every resident of Paracatu de Baixo, approximately 200 of them, was saved. But the town would not be spared. Within an hour of getting everyone to safety, the whole town was swallowed by waves of mud. Nearly every resident was left homeless. The inhabitants of the nearby towns of Bicas and Gestera were thankfully also warned in time, but those living and working close to waterways lost their homes and their livelihoods. The imminent threat to life continued to decrease further afield from Barakatu de Baisho, but emergency responders were now up against a new problem, the River Dose. The tailings from the Fundao Dam had initially spilled into smaller rivers and tributaries, but the force and magnitude of the debris was driving the waste at a staggering pace towards the River Dose, the third largest river in Minas Gerais. And the mining waste wasn't the only thing to worry about. The initial collapse had generated huge waves of tailings up to 10 metres high. As the waves flowed through the streams and rivers, other materials were torn from the landscape and carried along in the deluge, including trees, parts of buildings, animals, cars, and endless amounts of soil and sediment from the riverbanks. Before all this material entered the Dose, it flowed into the Carmo River, which cuts through the town of Bahalonga. 
Maria Machado, affectionately known as Dora to all her friends and family, remembers the exact moment the mud arrived in Bahalonga. When we got the call from there, from up in Mariana, that this mud was coming, we didn't even know how long it would be before it reached us. We didn't know that it had already destroyed villages before us. We didn't know anything. We stayed awake. Everyone here stayed awake, waiting all night. Nobody slept, and we suffered the whole night just waiting. And did you see when the mud arrived? Destruição. I did. I saw everything from the moment it arrived. It made it here at 5 a.m. What was it like? What did you see? It was just destruction. It was so loud you could hear this huge sound coming down towards us, the bridge coming down. It was just destruction. And the tailings were almost at the door of your house. It was all piled up in front of my house. It affected all of us. All of us. Laura Freitas was also born and raised in Bahalonga. And before the dam collapse leveled the town, she says her life was normal, peaceful. It's a very typical um, countryside city life. It's a small town. We were very close to one another there. We had a sense of community, you know. We went to the mass um, every week. We visited with friends at the... Um, city square so that was the fabric of the society and it didn't matter that the town was small we had that when I was young my parents got divorced so I lived with my mom and my grandfather in a house that belonged to my great grandfather it had a huge lawn and the lawn brought us straight to the river. Laura was at university, 70 kilometers away, when the dam collapsed. As soon as she heard that Bahalonga had been affected, she rushed home. All she could think of was the safety of her grandfather, who was 77 at the time. He had raised Laura like a father after her parents' divorce. It was very harrowing to go back and see that um, the city was leveled. But I was able to find my house and I went inside, but it was unrecognizable. The lawn had led to the river, didn't exist anymore. It was all under mud. There were no trees, no life. And the mud was shin high. Where I'd spent my childhood, it didn't exist. It didn't exist anymore. Laura's grandfather wasn't injured in the dam collapse, but he lost his family home, and at the time of this podcast release, it has still not been restored.
As the waste surged towards the Atlantic Ocean, it merged with the water of the River Dose and coursed through the town of Resplendor. Resplendor is home to the indigenous Krenak community. It is impossible to define Krenaks without referring to the Rio Doce, because we are the river people. That's Ludmila Brito. We interviewed her alongside her husband, Anderson de Souza, in the spring of 2023. The dam collapsed on November 5th, but the waste did not reach our village right away. It took some time to reach us, so we had some warning. Everyone started to grieve in anticipation. The elders, the young people, we all tried to go and say our goodbyes to the river. This was a moment of pure sadness. There were elders there who had been in contact with the river since they were born. We knew that we'd no longer be able to fish or hunt in the river. And this was a practice that was passed down from generation to generation. That day, it felt like when you know a relative is sick and is going to die, and you, you prepare for that moment. It's difficult to accurately describe in English what the river means to the Krenaks. For them, the river is kin. It's their mother, grandfather and sister all in one being. It's the keeper of knowledge since time immemorial and the lifeblood that has allowed them to survive. On the day the waste reached their village, they lost a part of themselves that they had been fighting to protect for their people's entire history. When we asked Anderson how he felt when he watched the tailings pollute the river, he said that he knew that life as it was, was over. On the 8th of November 2015, the waste reached the Baguari Dam over 300 kilometers away from the Fundao Dam. The dam trapped some of the mining waste, but considerable amounts of finer particles flowed through the structure and into the town of Governador Valadares. On the 5th of November, we heard a van coming round and making an announcement that's Jonathan Knowles. He's originally from the UK, but in 2015 he was living in Governador Valadares with his wife, Shayla, and their son. And um, I said to Shayla, there's a van going around saying that we need to store as much water as you possibly can. So, you know, it was people coming out in the street and asking questions and stuff. And then the news came that a dam had burst further up the river and it was going to take approximately 12 hours for this tidal wave that was going to be coming down. And they said, tidal wave. So we're imagining this, this you know, catastrophic wave coming down and wondering if it was going to destroy houses and all that type of stuff. The wave didn't destroy the town's houses, but much of the tailings remained suspended in the Dose. 
and for Governador Valadares, with a population of 280,000 people, this was a huge problem. All of the town's water supply came from that river. The tidal wave came. Uh, it wasn't kind of, you know, what, what I had imagined in my head. It, it didn't even flood initially. And it was like this big chocolatey, soupy thing. And, and it looked like, you know how you get the swirls in a raspberry ripple? It was like a, a dark coffee with these black swirls in it. And th the first day, it was just really, really choppy, the water. It was it, massive, big waves and, and, you know, kind of torrents of, of water coming down. On the day three, uh, we went down and it was biblical. From one side of the river to the other side of the river was just a mat of floating dead fish. You couldn't see the water for the fish. I didn't know that you could get that many fish in, in the river. There were huge fish, massive, massive, great big fish. What was the sort of feeling when you were down there on the, with other people kind of watching when they saw all that? That's our producer, Pulama. Uh, disbelief, I think disbelief. I mean, shock and disbelief. I mean, it, it, it was shock to see the amount of fish for a start. I mean, it was just like... Well, you know, there's no space for the water. There's so many fish in there. Unbelievable. And, and the fact that they were all dead. The toxic mud crossed the border from Minas Gerais to the state of Espirito Santo on the 15th of November. Before the Doce River goes on to enter a delta that spills out into the Atlantic Ocean, it still has a number of towns to course through. The last of these towns is Regencia. When people talk about Espirito Santo, one of the first things they mention is the surfing in Regencia. It's practically revered because of the unique waves created by the merging of the river with the ocean. Because of this, this humble town attracts tourists from all over the world, all year round, providing fisher people, farmers and craft makers much needed livelihoods. Eduardo Carlos is from the Tumpinquium indigenous group. He grew up near Regencia. My childhood and the childhood of my friends was a very happy one because we used to play a lot. We used to swim in the rivers and in the lakes and we would use them for all sorts of play. <laughs> we used to see who could swim more quickly and who could dive and hold their breath for the longest time. We knew the rivers so well that we would play hide-and-seek in them. In November of 2015, he was working as a bus driver for the local school. His route took him along a winding road that followed the Dose River. Each day, he would look out at the river on its course to the sea and feel a sense of peace. When he first saw the news of the dam collapse, he didn't think that it would affect his home. Um, I found out through a TV channel, the Global Network. They were showing live footage of the dam collapse. I watched the news and I was very concerned for all the towns that had been impacted. I kept thinking, will this reach us? But I didn't worry too much. 
At the time, I was working as a bus driver for school children, and my route took me along the banks of the River Dosi. I mean, I saw the river every day, and it looked clean to me, so I thought we'd be safe. But 12 days later, on the 17th of November, the river did start to change. I was driving the kids to school one day, and I think it was sometime around 6 a.m. I would usually set off around 6 a.m. and get home by noon. And that morning I looked out the window of the bus, and I noticed that the river was turning brown. The further I drove up along the river, the worse it got. That morning I knew we would be affected. I was sure of it. By the 22nd of November, the tailings from the Fundao Dam, located over 650 kilometers from the mouth of the River Dose, spilled into the Atlantic Ocean. The filters San Marco had set up at the mouth of the river following the dam collapse to stop any waste from entering the ocean failed. Brazil's environment minister, Isabella Teixeira, watched the mud flow into the sea. She addressed the country on national news and described the collapse as the worst environmental disaster in Brazil's history. Worse than the 2.7 million acres of rainforest that are felled each year in Brazil. Worse than the millions of animals that were killed for their hides in the Amazon basin in the 20th century. Worse than the 162 million hectares of trees destroyed by cattle ranching alone every year. This was the worst environmental disaster in Brazil's history. For days, the mud continued to pour into the Atlantic and threatened the Abrolhos Archipelago, a network of islands and reefs that are crucial marine biodiversity hotspots. The plume of mud expanded so far into the Atlantic, NASA was able to capture the spread from space. As the tragedy unfolded, biologist Luciano Magalis and his team at SAAE, one of Brazil's water and sewage treatment companies, began testing the river's water for toxins. His result sounded the death knell for the Doce River. Here, an actor reads his words. It's no longer useful for anything, neither for irrigation nor for animals, much less for human consumption. The scenario is the worst possible. It looks like they threw an entire periodic table into the river. The situation can be summed up in two words. Dead river. Homeless, heartbroken and exhausted, on the evening of the 5th of November, the residents of Bento Rodriguez stayed close together. They waited to find out what would become of their lives, their homes and of their memories. They waited to be reunited with their loved ones that they couldn't find. The next morning, the residents were taken to a convention center in Mariana to be assigned temporary housing. 
Pamela prayed for news about her daughter, Emmanuel. She counted each minute, each hour. Every emergency responder that walked into the room made her hopeful, but for days they had no information to share with her. So, we, who are mothers, um, we have too much hope. I was hoping to find her, thinking that she'd maybe wandered away or maybe that someone had picked her up, you know, something like that. But the days went by, you know. The collapse happened on Thursday and we heard about Manu on Tuesday, almost five days later. I was right there, putting my hope into action. I was there at the convention center with Nicholas. Nicholas had left the hospital on Tuesday morning and as soon as I could bring him, I went to the convention center to get him some clothes to wear. Um, when we got there, we started getting dolls and clothes from Manu as well. And then someone arrived at the door of the convention center and they said, Pamela, can you come with us? I smiled and said, guys, they found Manu. I went up the stairs, but when I got to the top, when I saw my brother-in-law's face, I thought they found it, but not in the way I wanted. He kept talking to me, saying, we're working something out, and look, there's no better way to say that to anyone. My brother-in-law said, Pamela Manu is dead. We found her in such a condition and such a place. I was sitting with my hand on the table and I remember that the table went like, like, like down. At the moment I, I collapsed. I said, they didn't do this to my daughter. It's a lie. I can't believe it. I won't see her. They wrapped her up until they put her in the coffin. They sealed everything just so I wouldn't see. My father said, Pamela, you don't need to say this. I had to face this for you. And I can't stand it either. But your daughter is no longer your daughter. Because she was very dirty, naked. Her insides were destroyed. She was injured. <laughs> so he said, I don't think it would be a good thing for you to see her. She was already rotting. I stood over that coughing all afternoon. It took a while for the for the smell to leave my nose. That that memory. I'll tell you, only those who go through it know. It feels like 
a piece of me has been taken away. Emmanuel Vittoria Fernandez Isabel was five years old on the 5th of November 2015, when the toxic mud from the Fundao Dam swept her away from her father's hands. Her body was found five days later in a tangle of branches and trunks in the river Golacho do Norte. I can't imagine her physically, right? The way she looks. But I can picture her as a person. She, she would be a wonderful person because she already was. She was my friend. She was affectionate. She said everything she had to say. She had a firm hand, you know. <laughs> so I'm sure she would be a very peaceful girl, right? With um, curly hair and black eyes. But it's hard. You know why? Because you start to forget when other people said to me, Pamela, you will pass, you will forget. I would say, I won't. Of course, I can't forget the pain of what it was, but I can no longer remember her smell, her voice. For a while, I could, but now I keep thinking, what, were, what was her voice like? What, what, what did she smell like? I can't, I can't remember anymore. So I can only tell you that she would be a good person today. A lot of people today ask me if I can talk about it, and I avoid it. That's Romeo Angels, the Samarco worker whose story we heard at the beginning of this episode. I avoid it because, let's say, it will, it will lead me to ruminate on more things and it will aggravate the problems I have today. I already struggled to sleep and speaking about it and thinking about it makes it so much harder for me to sleep. When I put my head on a pillow, it, it brings me back to the day of the accident. I have to open my eyes quickly just to see if I'm not in that situation, you know? It's like I can't get out of it. The medical staff, which I respect a lot, they tell me it is in my subconscious and, and that I just have to let it go. But it's not that simple, you know? Put it aside, put your head on a pillow, close your eyes and go to sleep. It's, it's not that simple. Of the 15 Samarco workers who were swept away by the mud when the dam broke in Minajarais, Romeo was the only one who survived. I don't know how I managed to survive. Do you know when you feel this force, this drive to survive, and you don't know where it comes from? It came, it came over me like an animal, like it was an instinct. I prayed for God to appear for me, for my family, for my daughter. 
And I just fought against it. And I said, they need me. Today, I think being alive is a blessing, a grace from God. Thirteen of the men who were working alongside Romeo would not be found for days. Others not located for weeks. The bodies of some were found over 70 kilometers away. Edinaldo was also working on the dam that day. He was the contracted employee who often shared his fears about the safety of the dam with his wife, Ana Paula. Our neighbors stopped me in the street and told me the dam had collapsed. And I said, oh, oh my God, Edinaldo is in there. Edinaldo is in there. And he said, Ana Paula, don't worry, he'll be fine. But I said, he's not fine. Because it had been 10 minutes and Edinaldo hadn't called me yet. I knew he must be in the middle of it because anything that happens, a delay at work, his phone dying, he borrows a cell phone and calls me to say, nigga, the phone's gone dead, or nigga, I'm going to be late because of this. And he tells me everything. So I started calling him on his phone and all I heard was that it was disconnected or out of range. You know, it kept ringing. So I went to my mother's house in despair, telling my mother that something had happened to him and nobody knew what. I called my sister-in-law in Mariana and she didn't know anything either. I got so desperate that I went straight to Mariana to try to look for his body. For 21 days, Anna heard nothing. Neither San Marco or the first responders had any information about Edinaldo. She wanted to believe that maybe he was still alive somewhere, managing to keep himself going on the water and the food he could find in nature. But on the 26th of November, the public morgue called to say they had identified Edinaldo's body. He was unrecognisable, unfit for a visual identification. But the DNA sample that Anna had provided confirmed it was him. Until today, like, I think one day he'll come back. I know that it really happened from the report we have and everything, but do you know what it's like to lose someone and not see that person anymore? His remains are here, but I didn't see his face after the accident, so part of me is not really sure if those are his remains, you know? Because of the time that's passed, I know he's not coming back, but that's what it feels like, an emptiness, you know? You see the person leaving for work and they never come back. In the town of Bento Rodriguez, residents were saved because of the heroic efforts of Paula Alves on her motorbike. Despite recommendations to Samarco years before, the company hadn't installed an alert system for people living below the dam. They hadn't run through safety evacuation drills with anyone. No one knew what to do with the disaster they faced on the 5th of November. We asked Samarco for comment, and they declined.
We'll never know if sirens would have saved Emmanuel or the other residents of Bento who died that day. If you visit Bento Rodriguez today, above the ruins and the overgrown bushes, you can make out a siren. And next to it is a sign that reads, Evacuate the area when the siren sounds. When the Fundao Dam collapsed, it killed 19 people. Ailton Martins dos Santos, age 55. Antonio Prisco de Souza, 74. Claudemir Elias dos Santos, 41. Claudio Fusa da Silva, 41. Daniel Altamido de Carvalho, 53. Edinaldo Oliveira de Assis, 40. Edmirson José Pessoa, 48. Marcos Odelio Pereira Mura, 34. Marcos Roberto Xavier, 32. Maria das Graças Celestino, 64. Maria Elisa Lucas, 60. Mateos Marcio Fernandez, 29. Pedro Paulino Lopez, 56. Samuel Vieira Albino, 34. Sileno Narcivicius de Lima, 46. Vando Morillo dos Santos, 37. Waldemir Aparecido Leandro, 48. Tiago Damasino Santos, 7. Emmanuel Vittoria Fernandez Isabel, 5. Next week on episode 3 of Dead River. The main responsibility is from the company. I have no doubt. Uh, the investigation process shows this very clearly. They knew about the situation of the dam. They knew. Was the Fundao Dam tragedy preventable? Dead River is narrated by me, Liz Bonin, and investigated by journalist Christina Serra and Pulama Kaufman. The podcast is produced by Pulama Kaufman. Stories are meant to be shared, so if, like us, you think this is a powerful and important story, please let your friends and family know about Dead River. And if you're enjoying this series, please leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening.